Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. As a teenager, um, I, uh, I was a pretty risk-averse teenager overall. So I was one of those guys, my, my friends called me the voice of reason on a regular basis. Like that was my nickname, right? Because I was always like, guys, I don't know if that's the best idea. I don't know if that's the best idea. I don't know if that's the best, that should have been my nickname is I don't know if that's the best idea. Um, but pretty risk averse. I was 16 years old and I got my first job. And so super pumped to, uh, to be a lifeguard, as a lifeguard at a private pool. So it was also the most boring job in the entire world um, because at private pools, it's kind of like a country club. No one actually gets into the pool. Now it's crazy. Everybody just kind of is around the pool. The one thing that I had to do is I had a, a, a grandkid of one of the people at the country club uh, swam into the steps and, and broke his nose. I'm like, All right, that's... I saved your life, all right. Um, uh, and so really that was the most exciting thing that I did that entire summer. But right when I first got my job, I was so pumped because there were all these new people around me to meet and socialize with. I had coworkers, like, let's go, people. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I remember at the end of the first week, um, a couple of my coworkers were like, hey, why don't you come over? We're all just gonna, gonna hang out after work today. And me being 16, I was like, cool. That means I don't have to be at home. Um, and so, so uh, the one thing that was different about these coworkers, though, is that all of them were older than me. All of them were between the ages of 20 and like 25, like older than me, like some of them almost a solid decade older than me. Um, and so being 16, I think anything of it. And like I said, I'm risk averse and probably had my head in the sand because I wasn't a big partier or anything like that. I was just like, oh, some friends want to hang out. What are we going to do? Play some Mario Kart or something like that? Um, and so uh, I called my, my parents um, on my massive uh, Nokia brick cell phone um, and uh, after I was done playing Snake on it, you know, um, and uh, uh, I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, hey, some coworkers are going to hang out uh, after, after work today. Um, is it okay if I go over there? And my parents said yes to me for almost anything, right, because I was a good kid. And so they had no reason not to trust me for the most part. Um, outside of a few toilet papering incidents and that sort of thing. They had no reason not to trust me, especially with stuff like this, because I wasn't a partier, and they knew that. Uh, the, most, the, the most concerning thing that my dad had for me when I was in high school was me and my friends were staying up too late playing Risk. And so, you know, literally, like, I was like, he was like, oh, he's a nerd. He's not going to get in any trouble. Um, so I called my dad, and I asked him, and uh, I remember he paused on the other end of the line for a second. He said, you know what? I just don't think that's a good idea. And I didn't tell him uh, how old they were. I didn't tell him uh, what was happening or anything like that because I really didn't even know what was happening. I just, I just said, hey, Dad, uh, some coworkers want to hang out after work tonight. Uh, is it okay if I go over there? He said, no. And of course, I did uh, a standard teenagers in the room, no offense, uh, standard teenager thing. We're just like, oh, Dad, come on. You would let Mike do it. Mike's my older brother. You would let Mike do it. All my friends are going. Like, Dad, come on. Really, none of them were my friends yet. But everybody's going to be there, right? 
And so he's like, you know what, Pete? He called me Pete. You know what, Pete? I don't think, uh, I don't think I'm going to let you do that this time. And so I just like, you know, shuffled home. I drove, but it's a better word picture if I shuffled home like that. Um, and I got home and, you know, I went straight to my room. I didn't talk to my dad. And, uh, you know, I went to work on that following Monday. And I, t- I found out this whole thing turned into like a rager. I don't even know if that's a word that people use anymore, but it was like, it was like this crazy party, like um, a whole bunch of people should like trouble showed up essentially, you know, uh, uh, just alcohol was flowing, drugs readily available. I mean, all this stuff, it was, and of course my coworkers talking to me like, this is epic. It was so, Pete, you missed it. In my head, I'm like, I'm so thankful. My dad saved me from that situation. Um, and so, but he never said, you know, it never ever once, uh, for the most part, said no to things like that, unless he had a reason. And so my dad just kind of assessed the situation. He's like, you know what? I really don't think that, uh, that this is a good idea. And largely, church, this is the direction uh, we're headed in the Gospel of John today. So last week, Jeff uh, talked about the, the first part of chapter five and the tension that needed to be answered was, what was the paralyzed man's greatest need? Uh, Jeff came to that. Was, was his greatest need physical healing or was his greatest need actually spiritual healing? And so that was kind of the crux of the entire, the entire message. And we allowed you all to wrestle with that question in your small groups uh, throughout the week. And this, this week, though, in the second half of chapter five, we're going to see that not only was the spiritual need the greatest need for that man, our belief in Christ is also the greatest need that any of us have. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your Bible app, you want to click open to whatever, it's John chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. So going back to the end of that story, relating it uh, to our text this morning, we're going to wrestle with this statement that's a, a pretty common statement in Christian apologetics. It's Christian apologetics, for those of you who don't know, Christian apologetics is the, essentially the, the defense of Christian faith. So the the phrase goes something like this. The issue is not whether you will believe. The issue is when you will believe. The issue is not whether you will believe. The issue is actually when you will believe. In other words, everybody will believe in Jesus at some point. It will be either in this life or in the next life. And so going back to that story, my dad was like, hey, look, you're either going to trust me now or you're going to trust me later. Because essentially the decision that he made was trust me now or trust me later. I have your best intentions in mind. So just trust me. So this week, uh, the text from John 5, Jesus is basically saying the same thing. You Jews will either trust me now, believe in me now, or you will believe in me when you confront me in the afterlife. That's essentially what they're saying. So if we went back to the beginning of John 5, for those of you who were here with us last week, the beginning of John 5, Jesus, like I said, heals a paralyzed man. And uh, in the kind of the end of that story, we see the, para, the, the paralytic talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, hey, who healed you? The paralyzed man was like, it was him. Um, and so what we have now in the second half of chapter 5 is Jesus responding to the Pharisees about what it is uh, that went down. And so to fully kind of explore this claim from Jesus uh, about Jesus being the Messiah, it's probably better for us to actually start with the last very end of chapter 5. So we're going to start in verses 30 to 47. Okay, And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit for you because it's a massive chunk of text uh, this morning. That being said, go back this week and read the entire thing. Okay, It'll probably take you 
uh, five or 10 minutes to get through the entire thing, but go back and read the entire thing. So once we get through 47, we're going to go back then to 16 uh, to 29. So Verses 30 to 32, we have Jesus telling the religious leaders of the day, uh, those people, they were called Pharisees, that he does, he does nothing on his own volition, does nothing without consulting God the Father. Okay? He does nothing apart from that. He's only doing things on behalf of God the Father, the one who indeed uh, sent him. And he says, look, if you guys want me to tell you about myself and claim who I am, it's not going to hold any weight with you. Right, the same thing if somebody uh, came up to you and said, hey, I am the greatest baseball player who has ever lived, right? Now, unless you know who that person is, unless, give you context, unless that person is Barry Bonds, you know it's not true. Right, so, yeah, some of you got that. You know it's not true, right? Or, or, or for the most part, you're gonna at least, at the very least, you're gonna question it. You're going to be like, hold up, time out. Who, who are you actually? And this is what Jesus is telling him here. He's like, hey, look, if you want me to tell you about myself, it's not going to hold any weight with you because it's me telling you about myself. So instead, let me offer you a couple different reasons for you to believe in me. Let me offer you a couple different witnesses who can attest to who I am. And the first of which is our boy who we've been studying quite a bit, John the Baptist. And so starting in verses 33 to 35, it says this, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Jesus offers John the Baptist's testimony. Okay, so if you've been traveling with us, you'll recognize that John the Baptist was a guy who, from the very beginning of the book of John, John consistently is writing about this other John, John the Baptist, and saying, hey, look, John the Baptist is consistently saying, that guy, that guy, that guy, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's about that guy. A little bit later on, we see that John the Baptist's disciples get upset because Jesus uh, is baptizing all these people. Like, they were upset about it. Because Jesus' ministry was more successful than the ministry they chose to be a part of. And John the Baptist is like, hey, look, good. That's where they should be going. He's the guy, not me. And the Jews knew this. And the Jews, like it says, they enjoyed his light for some time. So that means they listened to his teaching. They enjoyed what it was that he was saying. And Jesus is saying here, okay, you liked John the Baptist. What's that guy telling you about me? Oh, that guy is saying that, 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 that I'm the Messiah as well? That guy's saying I'm the Savior as well? That guy's saying that, that he's not fit to tie the sandals on my feet? That, that guy? What does he say? And so Jesus is being very clear with the Pharisees here. The second thing that Jesus says is, hey, check out my miraculous signs. It's Jesus' miracles. Is the second witness to his testimony. His miraculous side. The second witness Jesus refers to uh, is his own works. Verse 36, it says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. He's talking about John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. This goes back to the whole reason that John, the Apostle John, wrote the book of John. 
And we've gone through this a couple different times, but if you were to flip over, you don't have to. John 20, verses 30 to 31, and talk about why John specifically wrote the book. This is John's thesis statement for his gospel, where it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything he has done, everything Jesus has done, everything Jesus is doing, he's doing for the sake of people believing in his name. That's why Jesus shows up and heals people. He doesn't heal people because they're sick. He heals people because sometimes sick people, the only way they can see Jesus is through healing. Consistently, Jesus shows up on the scene. Jeff talked about this last week. The hundreds of people who were sick. Why didn't Jesus, have we thought about this? Why didn't Jesus just show up and be like, boom, you're all healed? And like drop the mic and walk away. Because that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to heal physical ailments. Jesus came to heal spiritual ones. And so as Jesus is on the scene here, he says, hey, look, look at my works. Let my works testify to who I am. You guys were there. You saw me turn water into wine. You saw me go into the temple courts and flip over a bunch of tables and make some whips and drive out the corrupt people. You guys saw me do that. You guys, you guys saw me heal a paralyzed man. You guys saw me do all of these things. So how do my works testify about me? And then Jesus goes for the jugular here with his third reason as to, uh, or his third witness as to why it is that people should believe, which is Old Testament scripture. Old Testament scripture. And man, they would have been really, really upset about this one because this is what it says starting in verse, we're gonna do 39, 40, and then verse 46. It says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And this is kind of where Jesus lands that last blow regarding uh, their reasoning as well as their egos. He hits them pretty good. The Jews, uh, they had, the Pharisees here, they had an exhaustive knowledge of their own scripture. Exhaustive. I mean, there were people who memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Not like the names of the books, the entire books. All five of them. Like they exhaustively knew what their scriptures said. They had so much knowledge, as a matter of fact, that they, they actually took pride in that knowledge. And this was the very problem with the, the scribes and Pharisees, actually. Jesus wounds their pride here when he tells them that if they had actually known the scripture, they would have recognized him as having, him, having come from God. Can you imagine how insulting this would have been to them? Like, let's put, it, let's put it in maybe a context so we can kind of understand. All right, everybody, uh, any teachers in the room? Raise your hand if you're a teacher. Teachers in the room, okay, a few of you, good. Any kindergarten teachers in the room? Okay, one. I'm going to offend one person today. Cool. Just kidding. So, let's pretend like everybody in here is a kindergarten teacher, okay? 
Okay, we're all going to pretend to be kindergarten teachers uh, today. And you assume yourself to be the greatest kindergarten teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. If there is something to know about teaching kindergarten, you know it. As a matter of fact, like you take your finger paints down and walk them around school and show the other kindergarten teachers and the other teachers how awesome your kids are at finger painting, right? And I know kindergartners don't just do finger painting, okay? So, sorry. So, but you're, I mean, that's how confident you are, that you are the best, you are the best kindergarten teacher to ever, to ever teach kindergarten. And then all of a sudden, one day, somebody walks up, a man you don't know, walks up to you and says to you, hey, I, I know you, what you think you are doing is good, but actually everything that you know about teaching kindergarten is wrong. That's kind of offensive. Like he's like, you know what? Those finger paints, those are real pretty, but why aren't you, uh, why aren't you studying sight words with your kindergartners? Like why aren't, you, why aren't you starting to work on their math facts? Why aren't you doing grouping? All of these things are way more important than, than the way that you're teaching kindergarten, and the way you're doing it. Or put it in a business context for you business people, right? You've been doing the same job. You've known how to do your job better than anyone for the past 30 years. You manage people better. You know exactly the ins and outs of your business. You know all of the things that you need to know in order to have a successful business. And then one day somebody walks into your, into your office and says, hey, look, I know that you think you're the best at this, but you're doing everything wrong. The way that you are doing things, you have completely and totally focused on the wrong things for the entire time that you have been working. Man, that, that hurts some egos, right? That would bruise your ego, especially for, for those of you who have put a ton of time in to, to the things that you believe, the things that you study, the, th the places that you work, the families that you have raised, all of those things. If someone were to come up to you and say that, all of a sudden, that, that's personal, that's exactly what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees here. So when we always make the Pharisees out to be the bad guys, just remember, man, they were doing what they thought was right. I mean, it was completely and totally wrong, but they did what they thought was right on a consistent basis. And Jesus comes in and he tells them, look, you are completely and totally wrong. If you believe Moses, then you should believe me. Because Moses, that guy that you guys love, Abraham, that guy that you guys love, he was talking about me. He was talking about me, and you've completely and totally missed the point. And this, this is the verbal punch Jesus throws at those religious leaders. So, uh, so when Jesus says this, he's reminding them that truly all Scripture ultimately points to Jesus. All Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus claims that because the Jews don't recognize him as the one to whom all scripture points, they actually don't know the scriptures at all. Nor do they have the love of, of God within them. And likewise, even as, as modern day believers in Christ, we fail to see this truth oftentimes in scripture. We fail to read the Bible and understand the Bible in its full truth and glory, and we come to bad conclusions about the message of God. And I say we because it's not just those people outside of the church walls. We do it all the time. 
we read our own biases, we read our own beliefs into Scripture rather than reading Scripture and getting our biases and beliefs from it. And it's a dangerous game that we play sometimes in our modern context. We end up thinking oftentimes that the Bible is a story uh, about us. We're not that important. The Bible simply isn't about us. The Bible is a story about God's son and the lengths that his son was willing to go to save us from our sin. For example, if we, uh, if we see the Bible primarily as a, a, a list of kind of moral and ethical imperatives and, and regard Jesus primarily as the ultimate example of how a righteous life is to be lived, we've missed altogether the main point of the scriptures. It's not a code on how to do better. It's not a rule book saying, oh man, just live like that guy. Should we? Yeah. But if that's your sole understanding of scripture, you've missed the boat. So returning back to 16 to 29 now, if the, if the Jews had refused to accept Jesus based on, uh, on the three witnesses he kind of put before them, Right, John the Baptist talked about his miracles and, and Old Testament scripture. Um, so if, if they had refused to accept him based on those things, they would believe upon him in the afterlife, though. That's what Jesus starts telling them. And Jesus makes it clear that when he offers two, actually, future witnesses, he tells them, says, hey, look, if you don't believe in me now, let me tell you when you are going to believe in me. And then it will totally convince the Jews of Jesus' status when they marvel at him. It's in verse 20. It's not on the screen, but it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He's, intentionally, he's essentially telling him this. Look, if people don't believe now, they will believe eventually. If people don't believe now, people will indeed believe eventually. So first, Jesus himself will be uh, their judge, and he'll give an account to him on, on their rejection of him. And then secondly, Jesus will be the one who raises him from the dead. In the future, these unbelievers will see Jesus resurrecting all of humanity with the power of his voice. Christ will exercise the very life-giving authority of the Father when he raises the dead. So what is Jesus saying about himself in this passage then, and why is he saying it? He is saying that he is the son of God. Jesus is making an incredibly bold claim here. He is putting himself equal with God. And the Jews would have understood that this is a claim to divinity. 17 and 18 says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always, uh, is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, Jesus healed the paralytic on the Sabbath. And so they were like, you can't do that. Don't heal people on the Sabbath. Uh, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This would have blown up the Jewish, the Jewish leader's paradigm. Because all of a sudden we have a man here who was claiming to be God, a man that they really don't like, claiming to be God. And they don't like him for two reasons. First reason is, is man, the Jewish leaders, they got a pretty cush gig. 
I mean, they are kind of celebrities of the day. They're walking around. People would have flocked to them. They wanted to know exactly what it is that they had to say and teach and all of that stuff. Kind of celebrities. They're rubbing shoulders with, with uh, politicians at the time. So they were good with the government that, that, uh, that was there, which would have been actually really, really shady business. And on top of that, they were paid pretty decently. And so all these things are like, like Jesus is coming in and he is upsetting the status quo. He's messing with what it is that they believe. And so not only that, but then, like I said, later on in the story, he's telling them, hey, you guys, you guys have read these scriptures your entire life and you got the entire thing wrong. You got the entire book wrong. It's like if you read Moby Dick and you said, no, it's not about a whale, right? And that's what Jesus is, is trying to communicate to them because Jesus is both God and he's the son of God. It's a mystery that good luck trying to understand. Christ is also saying that he has the very authority of God and he's been given authority from his father to exercise dominion over his entire created cosmos. Everything answers to his son. Everything answers to Jesus. But why then does Christ see the need to say all of these things? By healing on the Sabbath and claiming equality with God, the Jews think that Jesus is in violation of their law. He's in violation of the Old Testament law. He's breaking the Sabbath. He is blaspheming. Jesus is saying all of this to show that he had not violated anything. Instead, by presenting all of these witnesses, Jesus claims their understanding of God and Scripture is in contradiction to who God really is and with what the Scriptures say about them. This is why in verses 39 to 47, the very end, plays such a pivotal role in the argument by Jesus. These people, these religious leaders, have a conception of God and about what Scripture says, but because Jesus does not meet their own understanding of Scripture— and because he's doing things that they wouldn't expect God to allow, they reject him. Say, no, 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 that's not how it works. I read over here, you're not supposed to do that stuff. You're not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do those different things. So because of the way that they interpreted Scripture, they ended up rejecting Jesus. They very clearly have God right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ, but they would rather have their own conceptions about God. They would rather have their own ideas about what Scripture says than see the truth that was literally arguing with them. So the question then is, is what does this passage say to us today? So because of all this, what does that actually mean for us? Essentially, the text is telling us that those who don't believe in Jesus don't disbelieve because of a lack of evidence. There is clear evidence regarding Jesus. If you want some, some resources later on, like feel free. Come and ask me. Talk to Jeff. Talk to anybody on our board. They'd be happy to, to point people into that direction. There's not a lack of evidence. They actually fail to believe in Jesus because their conception of God is not consistent with the real God. Their conception of God is not consistent with the real God. We don't get to pick what kind of God we want. And so hear that for everybody in the room, whether, whether you have never said yes to Jesus before or you said yes 80 years ago, like we don't get to pick who God is. We simply get to recognize who he is and respond accordingly. 
That's our responsibility. God is under absolutely no obligation to make himself what we want him to be. He does not need us. He has stood on his own forever. Well, the three of them have stood on his own yep, forever. But like the Jews, we will believe, either now or later, in God as he actually is. There's a ton of modern examples of this. And we hear them expressed in statements like these. I can't believe in a God who claims to be all-powerful over suffering, but doesn't do anything about suffering. Oof. You've probably heard that one before. Like, well, if God's all-powerful, how come he doesn't cure everybody? He did. Just not what you wanted him to cure them of. I can't believe that all the violence in Scripture is really from God. As, a, as an aside, guys, if you're really looking for like a good action movie, read the book of Judges. Just FYI. Or another one, God will save everybody. People have this knack for remaking God into what they really want him to be instead of worshiping God for who he is. An error comes about in, in lots of forms when people are not willing to believe in God as he reveals himself in Scripture. When conceptions of God don't match up with the God revealed in the Bible, he's rejected. When conceptions of God don't match up with the God revealed in the Bible, he is rejected as non-existent. He's rejected as a different doctrine about God as manufactured to satisfy our conceptions. And at some point, we have to come to terms with the God who is actually there. Or we're going to end up just like the, these Jews. And we will suffer the judgment of God. We'll rise in the last day to meet everlasting duty. And on the flip side of this, those who believe in Jesus, those who believe in the God who is actually there and are willing to trust him, even when their own personal wishes about who God is aren't granted, when that happens... Those people in John 5, 24, it says they receive resurrection life and don't come into judgment. It says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. The 5, 24 says, so those who are willing in this life to genuinely admit the authority of Christ have freedom from sins and have eternal life. The teaching is hard, is hard uh, in our universalist, all roads lead to God world. The exclusive claims of Jesus Christ made him, uh, made him a target in his day and will continue to make us a target in ours. If you believe what scripture says. But in order to get to a place of understanding of this, we have to start with the understanding that we are all sinners in need of a savior. We have to start at baseline. Where is zero? Where do we all start at? Because let me tell you, if you think that you have started further ahead of somebody else because of a good thing that you did last week, you're wrong. I started in the same place, you started in the same place, your friends started in the same place, your great aunt who may say that she started in a different place started in the same place. We all started in the same place and that's we are all sinners in need of a savior. Every single one of us. Romans actually tells us that, that no one is good, not even one. No one. It's a doctrine of total depravity, that everybody is completely and totally depraved. All of us are bad. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And because no one 
No one is good aside from God. Our options are to believe his word now or believe his word when it's too late. Those are our options. And I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God, but I'm certain that if you call yourself a Christian, we need to start at the back or start way back at the beginning in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. Recognizing our need for salvation, saying yes to Jesus every single day. It's how we end our services every single day. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that Christ went to the cross to die for my sins and I choose to follow him every single day. We do that to give this opportunity every single week. And here's, here, here's another fun fact. You don't even have to wait for Sunday to do that. You'll need me. I mean, you do to like teach and lead the church. Please don't leave me go. But, but you, you don't need me for that though. You get the opportunity to wake up every single morning and say, I am going to choose to follow Jesus today. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus with my life. And this isn't, like I said before, this isn't just like a Christmas and Easter sort of faith we're talking about. It isn't an I'm a good person so I will get to heaven sort of faith that we're talking about here. It is a take up your cross and follow me sort of faith that we're talking about. It's a real, genuine faith. And I don't know if it's you who needs to hear that today. I don't know if it's, a, if it's you who need to hear it for yourself. I don't know if it's you who needs to hear it for, for somebody who's in your relational world, in your oikos, as we would say. For those of you who don't know, uh, we would say that everybody has an oikos in their lives. Eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you to make an impact in the kingdom of God. So I don't know if you need to be reminded of this doctrine today, the doctrine of grace, that, that Jesus is Lord and we're either going to believe now or we're going to believe later. I don't know if you need to believe it for you or I don't know if you need to believe it for somebody else in your life. But I'll tell you what, the one thing that isn't okay is for you to not make a decision regarding it. Everybody, everybody who has lived, who will live, who is currently living, will, will recognize who Jesus is at some point. We're either going to recognize it now or we're gonna recognize it when it's too late. And I'll tell you what, for those of you who are in the room who would say, you know what, I have a, a sound faith in Jesus, that I wake up every day and I do indeed choose to follow him. If that's you, I'd say that's fantastic. Continue to do that. But do not ever forget that there are billions of people in the world who don't yet know him. And some of those billions probably live right next door to you. Some of those billions may even live underneath your roof. And we've shied away from sharing the truth of the gospel of Christ because of their perspective of who God is. We need to recognize that God is a God of the Bible. That we don't get to decide who God is. We don't get to decide what God does. All we get to do is decide to respond to him accordingly. And as I read scripture, as I recognize who God is, it forces me to action. There's no lukewarm. There's no middle road. There's no fence sitting. There's no such thing. You're either in or you're out. And so I'm going to end the service today like we always do when we, we pray the ABCs, admit, believe, choose. But I would just say, if, if, if you're in here and you haven't yet made that decision for Christ, man, I would encourage you to do so. And then let us know about it. And on your Connect card, there's a little spot that said, I made a decision for Christ today. We'd love to be able to celebrate that with you.
But beyond that, as we're praying, if, if you are secure in your faith, if you're secure in knowing that, that God sent his son, he is the savior of my life, when I die, I'm gonna go to heaven. If you are secure in that, then I would say as we pray the ABCs today, I want you to be thinking about the person in your life, the people in your life who don't yet know who Jesus is. Because the God of the Bible demands a response in some way, shape, or form. And we're either going to believe now or we're going to believe later. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, thank you uh, for this text. Thank you for John 5. Thank you for the book of John that's just been rocking my world, Father. And just making outrageous claims about your son. Claims that uh, we can't even fathom. Claims that the, the Jewish leaders at the time couldn't even fathom. And so God, I pray that our perspective of God would not simply be our perspective of God. I pray it would be a biblical viewpoint of who you are. It would be a biblical viewpoint of your son. And because of that biblical viewpoint, God, that we would, we would respond accordingly. That we, would, that we would believe now. God, that everybody in this room would believe now. God, that everybody in Hanford would believe now, in Kings County, in California. God, that people would believe now before it's too late, before they have to believe later. God, that that would be our plea. That, that would be the plea of a, th those who have security in you already. That we're secure in our eternity. That those people on our hearts right now who don't yet know you or who have a distorted version of you, God, that they would come to terms with who you are. God, that they would believe now that you would use us to be instruments uh, to be able to pour out your grace on them and just say, God, this is, this is all about Jesus. This isn't about me. That I once was a sinner too. That I'm, I, I sin every single day still. But I am so thankful that, that the blood of your son, God, just covers me. So God, I pray for those people that we would just have your name on our lips we would have your actions in our lives, that we would just be obedient to you. We would be obedient to your son. And God, for those who don't yet know you, God, I just, I pray they would believe now. And if that's you in the room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I would just ask that you, you would just, Pray along in your head. You don't have to do it out loud or anything like that. Just pray along in your head and just say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, that I sin every single day of my life. I constantly fall short of perfection. I constantly fall short of your bar of holiness. But God, I believe that you sent your Son on my behalf to die on a cross, be raised from the dead, so I could then be with you forever. God, I recognize, I know I'm not perfect, but your son is. 
And that's why you sent him. And then C, I would choose to follow you every single day. That I'd look at what your word says regarding who you are. What you've commanded us to do. What you did on our behalf. That you loved us enough to send your son. Because of all those things, I choose to be obedient to your word and who you are. Father, I love you a whole lot. And I just pray that we would indeed believe now. So your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.